yourself before God on high. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God? As we open this morning with these words from Micah 6, we're reminded again that God has already told us what is good, and it is good to be together. It is good to be in His presence. And so I just extend a warm welcome to you this morning. Welcome to the opening session of the Embracing the Whole Gospel Conference, being put on in partnership between World Vision and the Center for Biblical and Theological Education here at SBU. Let me also warmly welcome all students to this chapel time, all other guests. We're delighted you're here, and we are praying that the Holy Spirit will guide and anoint and lead us, even as we worship. Father, and 
if you've actually done the reading, it actually reads like an episode out of Modern Family. Uh, I mean, check this out. Bouts of depression. Dysfunctional family. A relentless search for happiness. A southbound bent toward entertainment, food, and sex. If I keep going, I'm going to lose my family rating, so I'll just stop there in terms of what I was finding with this wonderful writer and church father. Looking back, Augustine surmised that each of us is on a search for transcendence. We're looking for something to connect with that's actually outside of ourselves. Something beyond us. There's something deeply unsatisfying about just the way I am. I need to be connected to something bigger, something larger, something beyond me. Each of us is on a search, but without the appropriate coordinates, he would say. Without the right guidance system. Without the right course markers. Then I quote, the human race wanders blindly, leaving us in an endless search for happiness. He could have been writing about Seattle circa 2011. For Augustine, it was an issue of attachments. That's the word he gave to it, attachments. Finding the right thing to give our lives to. And he said that in this frantic search for meaning, you and I attach ourselves in love to any manner of objects that somehow promise something extra. They're not only things that we attach ourselves to, they actually have different weights. And the important skill in life, the important game in life, is to attach to the right thing in the right order. Some promise exceptional results, and they quickly flame out like a 4th of July sparkle that we hand to our underage kids. Others are understated, and then surprisingly, they over-deliver. Augustine's point is that you and I are the decision-maker. We govern what we love. We freely choose what we attach to. We attend to those things that we want to attend to. And so for Augustine, the real goal in life was rightly ordering these attachments, rightly ordering them so that what we say and what we do, what we commit ourselves to actually has meaning. It won't disappoint us. There's a wonderful quote. I'll put it on the screen. For one who seeks what he cannot obtain suffers torture. And one who has got what is not desirable is cheated. And one who does not seek for what is worth seeking for is diseased. I find that a fourth case where the happy life exists when that which is man's chief good is both loved and possessed, and having had a whole road of failures, for Augustine, the ultimate attachment was, was connection to a compassionate and all-loving God. We use this phrase a lot, John 10, 10. Life in all of its fullness is found when I get that attachment properly connected in my life. Coincidentally, based on experience, the opposite was also true. Disordered love. The attempt to find fulfillment when I wrap my life around objects, that degree, that car, that elusive job. And when I wrap my life around people, the right social circle, a ring by spring, uh, <laughs> making something primary before this key attachment to the all-loving creator. When I do that, and I shouldn't be surprised when I have distortions in behavior, when there's disappointment or what you would call non-life. Now, why am I sharing this? My guess is you probably know this stuff. In one way or another, you've, many of you have committed your life to that all-encompassing one, this one that he said was the chief attachment. But the question I get on the variety of Christian and university or secular university campuses that I visit is, is there something more that I should be attaching my life to if I have that first one attached? What else should 
that I'd be attached to. And increasingly, perhaps spurred by the fact that I became a major donor to Christian academic institutions, it seems that uh, at a Christian college, you as students or possibly faculty with us this morning should be asking that question as well on a right regular basis. Well, there are a number of things I can share, but I'm just going to share two because of time that I think we ought to be taking a look at with reference to those attachments. It's my hope that before you leave this place, if you're a student, that you would have a right-ordered heart for the world. Attaching yourself to the world. It's a big place. It's a complicated place. Now, how do you and I do that? When I was at the University of Kansas, I ran track. It's probably the only thing that would have drawn me from San Francisco Bay Area to that kind of windswept part of the Midwestern Plain. We had a coach who was into biomechanics really before his time in the field of athletics. He was constantly striving that our bodies would be in a certain level of alignment such that when your leg, for instance, was in a certain kind of knee drive, it would only go so far and no more. And it would never go under the level that he wanted it to be. Why? Because if you practiced it enough, it would just get into a regular motion such that when your lungs were heaving, when you didn't think you could breathe again, when you thought you were going to die, your leg, so, so practiced in the art of going up and down to a certain level, would continue to do that. Crazy, I know. But it actually worked. Running efficiently is what he called it. I shared this with a doctor on an airplane, and he said, preload. I said, preload, what's that? He said, preload, that's when the heart muscle moves the initial stretching of the ventricle of the heart to its greatest volumetric pressure, thus creating a reaction such that it snaps back to a place of equilibrium. And it keeps doing that, so much so that so practice becomes the heart that it actually circumvents the central nervous system. That makes sense to me, because now when I'm in pain, it keeps moving. It keeps going, even in difficulty. Preload. You create a heart for the world by creating a natural tension. But in order to stir up that tension, you need two ingredients. First, you and I need to understand the truth about the world. Not the world as I imagine it to be. The world the way it really is. And across my desk roll staggering figures. There are 300,000 child soldiers worldwide. By the way, that makes it one in 10 children is a soldier, if there are soldiers out there. There's an estimated 218 million children who are used for labor, meaning trafficking, armed conflict, sex, hazardous works, millions of them in virtual slavery. Did you know that? Global water scarcity impacts four out of 10 persons. Four out of 10, just look at your row. Many of you have 10 people in it this morning. Four of you are parched, if you're part of that stat. By 2025, roughly one-third of the world will be scavenging for safe water. I could just do that right now if I was to say that the first third of this gathering just stood up and you took a look at it. It would become a lot more real, wouldn't it? And too many African countries, between 25 and 40 percent of teachers say they have no book or guide for the subjects that they teach. All the more reason to look at this stat. A third of all the world's children failed to complete the first five years of schooling. And oh, by the way, if you don't get those first five years, you don't learn to read and write. 
And if you don't learn to read and write, your chances of actually having any kind of a foreseeable future have been limited substantially. The biggest killers of children today are also the easiest to prevent and to treat. Diarrhea, pneumonia, and malaria. Six dollar bed net can actually protect two kids. Did you know that? An expensive latte. And you just free two kids from being bit by an insect. In the U.S., just so you know, I'm not biased. For everything outside our shores, one in five children are living in poverty. Just so we understand what that means, 22,050 for a family of four. One in 12 are living, living in extreme poverty. That's defined by $11,500 for a family of four. Do the math. You know, it's not all bad news. It's not all bad news. Bill Gates in a recent economic forum said that in 1960, 20 million child deaths were due to these preventable issues. In 2009, there were 9 million. This year, there were 8 million. And the goal by 2015 will be 3 million child deaths. So the trajectory is all over the place, going up and down. But the story, as we have it, is the way it is. It's not the way we want it to be. It's the way it is. And to formulate a creative tension, you have to tell the truth about our world, and it needs to be core to more than the International Relations Department at most of our schools, or the Office of Global Concerns. The world affairs have, are exerting a greater and greater impact on all the disciplines within the academy. I just paid $4.55 for a tank of gas in Chicago. By the way, that is the most expensive place to go buy gas. Do not go there to buy gas. <laughs> That's an international relations problem, that's easy enough. That's an economic 101 discussion for sure. That's a social work concern because the price of fuel made it impossible for the poor to buy it, thereby losing their jobs. That's a political science issue because a hungry man is a desperate man. Remember Tahrir Square in Cairo? Last time we had something this bad, we had people in Africa seeding their kids' food with dirt so that the kids wouldn't cry out in hunger pains. That's a business issue. That's a banking issue. That's a spiritual emergency because Jesus' pronouncement in Luke 4 about the gospel was supposed to be good news to the poor. And he wasn't just speaking in terms of spiritual platitudes. He was talking also in practical realities. <clears throat> this is the world that you will inherit, a world that you may not want, but the one that you get. It's critical that you understand the way the world really plays out in education, in conflict, in climate, in health, in employment, in hunger, in displacement. By the way, it's one of the reasons why I happen to love this campus. The very fact that you've set aside a day to pinpoint these issues and to get really serious about them. You need the truth about the world. But if you just leave it there, you create a kind of detached awareness, a disconnected enlightenment. Awareness because now I know what the issues are. I know what the problem is. They're detached or disconnected because, let's face it, this whole issue is completely overwhelming. I, uh, I love to body surf. I don't know if any of you are into that. Uh, I love to just experience that whole thing. If you've never done it, by the way, there are three things. I was talking with Rich earlier uh, last year, and he said there's actually four. There's the pile driver, in which the wave actually takes you and embeds your hand into the sand uh, as the wave overcomes you. Um, but there are three primary ways you body surf. One is kind of the weak way, 
It's what I term the kind of the girly mind way. Uh, it's when you see the wave coming and you get as far off the meat of the wave as possible. You can come into the show and say, I body surf, but no one will really give you any credit. Uh, there is the other two ways, and that is where you get into the thick of the wave and, and deliriously ride it down its crest and then take it as far into the shore as you can go. I can see where the smiles on many of you that you have tried that. There's also another way. And that is when the wave looks like it's going to disembowel you. And you know this may be the last wave you ever take. And as the wave comes, you wait until the last split second, and then you duck, you duck into the wave. And when you do that, the wave, I know this sounds crazy to those of you who have not tried it, it actually goes over you. You pop up like a fork, and the wave is behind you. And to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
It's why Zechariah would later prophesy, this is what he, Lord Almighty, says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. It's why Isaiah would scream, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. The law will go out for me, my justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. But we all know why Israel was given the boot. They didn't follow instructions. They didn't have a right or heart. And over 500 years after Israelite exile, Jesus understands what the plan is. He understands what he's supposed to do. He picks up this theme and he begins to focus it. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything, everything that I have commanded you. Everything. Stewardship of the entire created order, reconciliation of all things under Christ. And in case this is getting complicated and you want this to be spelled out, you want me to simplify it, by the way, Steve, what is the bottom line? On earth as it is in heaven. That's it. Experiencing the tension of this earth as it really is and what God intends for it to become creates automatic engagement because you can't deal with the discrepancy from what you know you were called to do and what you see out there and in here. Connecting so deeply with the flow of God's intention for the world and the way that it really is, the resulting justice reaction. And they are calling this generation the justice generation because somewhere along the line they heard the words right. And they saw the world right. This is where acting on AIDS got its start. Some of you know that. A student by the name of James Pedrick, with Jackie Yoshimura and Lisa Crone had gotten a boatload of teaching on some of the things we're reflecting on today. And somewhere along the line, they went outside into the world and they asked real life questions. And the discrepancy was so great, they just said, I will give up my career, whatever that is, in order for other people to understand what I see. To advocate rightly. To engage properly. As for you take a bow, that campus little meeting has grown to now 230 plus campuses, secular and Christian across the country. Last summer I was taken by an address given by our new international president describing world vision's motivated attachment to the world. This is what he said. We don't accept that any child should have to go to bed hungry. We don't believe that mothers should watch their children get sick and have no way to help them. We don't believe that fathers should work 16 hours a day and still not be able to provide for their children. We don't believe teachers should give lessons to children who have no textbooks or papers or pens. We don't believe that governments and rebels should recruit youths to kill, or that girls should be bought and sold, or that parents should sell their children to play and pay their debts. And when he said that, you could just sense there was a movement in the room where people were just grabbed by the heart. They sensed the disparity. And then he basically nailed on what was going on in the heart of every individual that was listening. There is a righteous anger in the heart of world vision. May I add, anyone who follows Jesus, but at the same time, we overflow with love for all those for whom we are called to serve. Amen. Is there a righteous anger on this campus? Anyone experiencing tension 
sensing a misalignment in the way the world really is and the way that God intended it to be? By the way, if there's not, are you awake to what is going on beyond the walls of this place? Are you aware of what God has invited you to ride? What wave he's got you on? On earth as it is now. For my travels abroad, the transformation has already uh, taken place in Christian leadership. Now so much of the church is growing east, south, and west of here. What has been somewhat challenging is the kinds of people that are leading those churches. Many of them are literally the abject poor. That rather than an ancillary person or an afterthought, true meaning in life is found as the poor become someone we attach ourselves to. Because that's the second attachment that I'd like to conclude with this morning. Not just an attachment to our world, but an attachment to the poor. It's truly difficult to do this. My wife and I, um, well, let me change that, the entire marketing department of World Vision, have struggled with promoting this attachment given the environment in which you and I live. In 1997, 2,000 Times uh, New York Times article said that we are bombarded every single day by 5,000 media ads every single day. Did you know that? That's double from a generation ago. We've tried to get our kids to understand what ads mean. When they were younger, we had a game we called Spot the Lot. We gave them a quarter and start off with a nickel. Things got expensive. We started giving them a quarter. They could watch the ad on television and then determine what are they really selling. It's not really features. It's being popular. It's not really. It took some time until really they recognized that they just said sex. They were right about 75% of the time. <laughs> It's tough to spot the lie when you want it to be the truth. Check this out. Basics 101. According to the Old Testament prophets, the kingdom of God would exert itself primarily in three ways. Men and women were to be in right relationship with God. Augustine's chief attachment, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they'll know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Second, people would experience right relating patterns or appropriate attachments with their neighbors. Micah 4.3, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Just as essential, God's people would operate in such a way that even the environment would benefit. Creation would be cared for. And the wolf will live with the lamb, Isaiah 11, 6. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child shall leave them. And as this took place, the unmistakable reality would be an overwhelming peace of what the scripture called shalom, a peace that manifested itself in reconciled relationships or relating patterns. Well, parenthetic comment. Did anyone break open the USA Today today? Given the prophets' otherworldly descriptions, swords into plowshares, lambs laying down with lions, no one fearing anything, everyone knowing God from the least to the greatest, how does that fit with what's happening in the Middle East right now? What do you do with gouging prices in the south of our country after a disaster has set in? What about the recent deaths of church members in Egypt? Or the fact that a third of the world's children don't make it to fifth grade. 
swords of the plowshares, it's easy to see why we consider this blue sky speak or, or maybe the fuzzy thinking of prophetic substance abusers. The rebel plan. Reconcile. It doesn't jive well with the world in which we know it. But let's face it, it's so easy to write off the kingdom of God thing until you realize Jesus was talking about it in the present tense. And he said it over 90 different times. The kingdom is now to be lived in the garden variety events of our lives. That's true. Hang with me. You understand this and you begin to understand why Jesus seemed preoccupied with this announcement to the poor. If the kingdom was for everyone, not exclusive to a tribe or a people group, not conditioned by how much you made or where you live or whether you floss or not, if the broken spiritually, physically, socially, politically, economically experienced the benefits of this kingdom, then you would know proof positive that the kingdom was within you. It was in your community. It was spreading. It was alive and active to the point Brokenness and poverty and the environment that it breeds is incongruent with the kingdom ideal that God established. God's kingdom and human brokenness don't mix. They don't mix today. They haven't mixed ever. We were trying to uh, get through God's my wife and I with a close friend. I was sitting in the front seat with him. She said because of leg space, we were both tall. We were just going through that part of the world is pretty broken, probably the most heavily peopled area in the face of the earth. You have more people crammed in per square inch than almost any place on the globe, and objectively poor. We saw kids with orange hair, we saw malnourished bellies, we saw buildings that were pretty shot up. And somewhere along the line, we just got talking too much and we forgot to, that she was sitting in the back seat. We had experienced things like this before. This was her first introduction to global poverty, Gaza. And so along the line, I remember to be a beautiful husband. And I remember putting my arm on the rest of his, of the driver's seat and turning back and saying, Hun, how you doing? Flipping. And every facial orifice had something running. She was a mess. Mascara down her face, just kind of sitting in her own private place, dismembered, emotional. These people, she said, are living in hell. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and she got it right. And as we connected with the emotions that she was experiencing, we got it right. And I really don't care what your political stance is. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. It didn't fit with God's original intention, and it doesn't fit today. And I've been in too many disheveled huts and mixed shit models of the poor little hell holes of the disenfranchised all over the globe. Poverty is a desecration of God's original kingdom design. And we spiritualize poverty and we actually cut ourselves off from the good things that God wants for us as we come together with that community. Tension, 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 tension. When the poor, the weak, the marginalized become core to our academic institutions, we show the true distinctive character of Christian liberal arts education. And SBU, we've got that one right. Our attachment to the poor serving as a direct confrontation to the existing world order that prizes personal 
power and platform over the Imago Dei, the image of God, in every single person that is created. When the poor and broken become central to our relating patterns, don't be surprised if you also find your soul's ultimate source of meaning. Let me just close with one illustration that was powerful because it happened here. I was in a meeting uh, when the AIDS piece with Acting on AIDS got started and they decided to student run to do a symposium. It took us by surprise. It was really, really, really good in so many ways. They brought in people from all over the place. How students had time to organize, I don't know. The last part of the session was a man named Mike. I didn't know his last name. Mike was surrounded by seven students who had decided that since not one student could actually take care of Mike, all seven would take care of Mike. They would meet with him. He had full-blown HIV. He came with two crutches in which, uh, canes in which he was just kind of standing on. So most of the time he just stood there shaking because his legs were giving out. HIV had so eradicated his muscle tissue and the way in which that disease often operates on a body that he was having trouble standing. We asked questions of the different students, so what do you do? One said, I rub his head. I hadn't thought of this, but I attached myself to rubbing his head because he likes to be touched. We were to find out that Mike hadn't been touched for three years when his diagnosis of HIV had come out. It's pretty heavy when no one touches you, when you're used to touch. I've been manhandled from Jesus since I've come in this morning, loved, hugged, shaken hands. What happens when no one touches you? Another person said, I rub his feet. We went all the way down the line to the last student and said, I do my homework. Slacker. Um, and then Mike just took the thought out of our head. He said, I just like people being in the same place I am. So desperate for human contact. And then Mike began to lose his ability to stand. And he began to shake. His legs began to wobble. And he began to go down, literally, in front of us. And one of the students said, knock it off, Mike. Give me your arm. So his arm went over one of the students like this. The other one grabbed his arm. And then he began to sag. And for the next 20 minutes of Q&A, this is what I looked at in the center of Christian community. That which the Christian community attaches itself to and finds meaning. First and foremost, with the ultimate source of meaning, and if there's anyone this morning that doesn't understand that ultimate source of meaning relationship, then I invite you to begin it. But secondly, to understand that a right-ordered heart naturally follows that I begin to have a naturally right-ordered heart for the world. And if I do that and engage properly, I will discover a right-ordered love and heart for the poor. That I receive blessing and then naturally give it to a world so desperately in need of it. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this morning. We ask that you would help us attach rightly. We get our priorities in order. And in doing so, find life. Life to the full. It's a good thing to pray.